On today's episode, Victor hops into a jazz club for an open mic night and remembers the five words that really matter. Next, we muse on the experience of time in periods of crisis. I'm Victor Green. And I'm Grant Monjan. And this is That Free Lunch. Right, let's do this again. A little different this time. Uh, I told myself that money would never be a factor. You know, living in a foreign country during a pandemic has been a kind of a weird experience for me because I've had more time, I think, to think about how much I miss like different aspects of home uh, mm. because I'm stuck inside uh, with my thoughts more often. But weirdly, one of the things that I keep going back to is how much I miss Chicago style Italian beef. <laughs> and it's just this hoagie that's dipped in the juices of the beef lined with some um, caramelized onions and then topped with the Italian beef and the hot peppers and the cheese. Oh, it's divine. And I just, I miss it so much. Oh my gosh. Uh, I had, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure I had Italian beef when I was in Chicago. Like in, in general, the food between the deep dish, between the Italian shaved uh, ice. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's like amazing. And this is torture that you're bringing this up. <laughs> Not even just because of the food, but like, Oh gosh, I miss Chicago. Summertime Chicago, not wintertime. Uh, Post hibernation Chicago. Uh, I've thought a many a time, and even you bringing it up uh, of how how much I I wish I could go back. Yeah, I, I sometimes forget that you've been to Chicago before. But Twice. Yeah. Twice. Uh, which the first time was for a a conference on story and storytelling, hmm. which. I feel like that sounds very, I don't know, indie artist, <laughs> misfit artist or whatever, but it was super, it was super cool. There were, I remember specifically there were representatives from Pixar and Nike who hmm. were there, which was really inspiring for me because this was at a time when I was really getting into thinking about storytelling. And so I really wanted to come back. And so the second time I, I came back, it was for an internship which is the last thing I think about when I think about visiting Chicago a second time because it was 2016 and 2016 was a nightmare of a summer um, for many reasons, globally and personally. I was, I was just coming off grieving the death of Prince. This, is, this was a summer with so many hashtags and Black Lives Matter movements and there was a protest that I participated in, Chicago, downtown Chicago, uh, for Laquan McDonald, um, and then personally, I, there was there was a few phone calls that I was needing to make and was just trying to figure out what words to come up with that would be appropriate and what to say to some people who are really um, really dear to me. And uh, and actually, even thinking about it, this is this is definitely the summer I can point back to and say this is when I fell into poetry. Hmm. I started writing poetry furiously um, to the point that I even heard about a open mic night that I got really excited and nervous for um, because I was contemplating performing. And so I started working on this one piece and I thought maybe I would 
build up the courage to perform if I, I don't know, put together the right words or saw a sign. Did you? I remember three things. One, I got a phone call. Two, Bianca. Three, there was a full moon that night. I'm jamming on Prince's I Wanna Be Your Lover when I arrive at the famous Green Mill Cocktail Lounge Jazz Club at North Broadway Street in Uptown Chicago. Bianca isn't there yet. I give the bouncer Big Al cash and walk into the sounds of smoky jazz and big band. The original owners were inspired by Moulin Rouge, otherwise translated the Red Mill. They wanted the pizzazz without the connotations of the red light district, so they turned red into green, French into English, and bada boom. The Green Mill Cocktail Lounge was born in 1910. And in 1986, thanks to a guy by the name of Mark Smith, it became the birthplace of the poetry slam movement in the whole United States of America. But most folk don't come for that. Most come to conjure the ghost of its infamous mafia history. One, Jack Machine Gun McGurn, the only man to stand trial for the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Two, Al Capone. They still have the same booth reserved for him and his henchmen, facing the entrance and the exit just in case they needed to have a quick getaway. Three, all the elaborate mazes of escape tunnels hidden just below the wraparound bar with private party rooms and passages for smuggling booze pre-prohibition. The place is a living movie set from another time. Next to the stage is the signature art deco fixture of the Green Mill, a statue they've named Stella by Starlight or Ceres, goddess of harvest and the love a mother bears for her child. Off stage and in front of Stella are several of the dancers, dressed up in whatever 1940s, 1950s get-up version they could create from thrifting. The collective site was a cosplay prayer and a strange ritual made at the altar of time. The same different kind of time where being black gave me zero desire to return to the 40s or 50s where I wouldn't stand a ghost of a chance against an Italian or Irish gangster mob. Nor did I, in that moment, have any desire to entertain the oft-asked party question. If you could time travel, what era would you want to visit? I knew hashtags and Tommy guns and gangsters time traveled and changed forms. Despite wearing the same clownish smile caked on their faces, annual crisis were glamoured in the same makeup. But the relic and the muse, the Lindy Hop cakewalk clap cadence and the boogie bop bop groove transposed the air itself. The atmosphere in the green mill carries the Billy Holiday of possibility that not even time could prevent or dictate. As I imagined it did back then, there is an improvisational spirit to what is happening and anything could happen type feeling. Everything is in motion. Everything is almost and almost on the break of something. I sit in one of the many green velvet line booths and I get caught up in it. And instead of going over my poetry, 
I turn to a blank page of my notebook. I'm writing words down like moon mythologies and green aberrations and babe. I'm tapping my feet like the bassist. My head is bobbing. My legs start gliding a bit. If you've never considered what would happen if you took all the gravity out of a room, it's something like jazz and poetry. Nothing held us down, nothing held us back. Not gravity, not time, not the loss of either. Because the next thing I knew, the dome of the club exploded. And the green mill turned into a planetarium. I start levitating just above my seat, like an astronaut training at an observatory for celestial navigation. Stella is floating sideways too. The musicians and the dancers are in the air, twisting and turning, upside down, spinning with the motion of heaven. We are its constellations, stars and moons for a cosmic aero ballet. We are its celestial bodies, refusing our orbits, sounding with brass and body, the deepest conviction that our collective sound, our syncopated surge, our get down, could rearrange and defy whole scores. It's one of those out-of-body experiences where we remember whole worlds we thought we lost and never knew were inside ourselves. And I'm writing down words midair, phrases like, pulls me in, bars like until tomorrow, when the music comes to a close. Bianca Phipps walks toward the stage. I'm back on the ground now, wondering where the time went and how I missed signing up for an open mic night I dreamed about. I'm a little disappointed, but only a little and only at first because Bianca held the missing sentences I was trying to break and piece together anyhow. She performs third. I have never felt so at ease as the day you called me precocious. I have never feared big words, only those that refuse to use them, and the syllables rolled off your tongue like honey. I was hooked. Language became our vein of communication, and I know that everybody uses language to communicate, but ours was different. As if in between the letters and the syllables, there is a secret message only we could decipher. My days were filled with the sound of your voice, and your nights were littered with the loops of my handwriting. We exchanged our favorite words, mine being illuminated and yours being cattywampus. And our least favorites, mine moist, and yours almost. And when I asked you why, you said it was because almost held failed potential, that it represented our ability to be just not good enough, that we had come to the brink of something beautiful but fell short so many times, we crafted a word for it. But even we, with our supposed mastery of the English language, were not immune to the shortcomings of our vocabularies. Words can only help you if you speak them. I never told you that I loved you. You never told me that you were dying. Five easy words that would have shattered our world. I love you, I think. I have a brain tumor. 
You know, still to this day, I don't know all the details because medical jargon has never fit right in my mouth. And even now, five years later, it feels like an invasion of your privacy. But I do know I have poured over our conversation searching for the secret message you certainly tried to send me, and I am sorry. But I only almost found it. Salt water is not good for paper, and my tears warped your words. After some serious consideration, I've decided to change my least favorite word because while moist is gross, malignant is malicious. Malignant is uncontrollable, means a phone call and the phrase he didn't wake up. Malignant is messy and unfair and a thief. Malignant means I never got to say goodbye. Malignant is the cause of almost. Because you were on the brink of something beautiful, but you couldn't quite reach it and you fell too far. I am so sorry I wasn't there to catch you. I hope your heaven is a library, and I hope it is void of almosts. Te amo, Daniel. Sleep well. Y'all like that poem? Say hell yeah. My jaw drops. I'm soul-filled like Ray Charles and dizzy like Gillespie. I don't remember what I said or what she said. I just remember sponging her words and the afterwards she gave me at the booth before I left. Now, I'm standing outside, looking at my phone. I press follow on Bianca's Twitter page and read the last lines of a second poem she forwarded to me just after we finished drinks and said goodnight. It's titled, Here in My Body. It starts small, here in my body, here in my house, here in my words. The future belongs to those who believe in it. And I do, I do. I look into the moon and believe on the same blank page. Some things only work in movies, but other things work in poetry, in silence, in words. I finish writing this. Mythologies of the Moon by Victor Green. Here are my words. One, what you don't say can keep people around long enough to love you back. Two, what goes unsaid can never be said again. Three, gravity is a gangster and love is vulnerable to death. Four, words cannot travel through time or pass through matter. Five, time is malignant. There's something about your love constant outside my window every night. In your eyes, green aberrations hang like lights and pull me in. Babe, let's go back in time until we find the words we need for tomorrow.
Subscribe and follow That Free Lunch on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Okay. Dick. That Free Lunch is a community of people who come from many places, embody different backgrounds, hold varying opinions, and find ourselves on unique spiritual journeys. We are misfit wanderers, students and professionals, creatives, theologians, and dreamers. We dare to dream of a world where those on the margins are central to our grand narratives and cultural imaginations. Welcome to neighbors, strangers, and friends. Welcome to siblings, to single people and partnered people, to married people and divorced people. Welcome to people of all countries, all colors, all cultures, and all classes. Welcome to people of all genders, all gender expressions, all sexual orientations and identities. Welcome to all those whose identities are complex and who long for their stories of joy, sadness, fear, grief, gratitude, doubt, faith, or peace to be heard and held. You are welcome to join with us as we work to create a space where everyone who enters in knows you are safe here. You are worthy of love and belonging. Welcome. I found a tweet. Okay. By Mike Edwards. I don't know who this is, but giving credit. He put, in case you lost track, today is March 97th, 2020. <laughs> now we're in April, but I remember I remember looking at this and laughing because there's something that felt really real about that, at least in my in my own experience and and how time has gone in the past couple of weeks. But it leads me to a question, which is how do you think crisis shapes our sense of time. Hmm. That is an interesting way to pose it because I think we often think of time as like this objective thing that's this kind of metronome in the universe that everything is subject to. But in so many ways, time is so grounded to our own experiences. And in this time of crisis, especially this particular type of crisis where we're stuck inside and our means of production are disrupted, Mm -hmm. time is now like extended to this point where... I mean, this is like the longest month I've ever (laughs) lived through, it feels like, because everything that I use to fill time or to make my time feel valuable has been kind of taken away or changed in a significant way. And I think also with that, since so many major things are changing so quickly, I don't think we're used to having like such a short sequence of events, like dramatic events, where every day it's like we're getting some new revelation around coronavirus and the effects that it's having on our day-to-day lives that to even think back two weeks ago, like normally the amount of things that have happened in this two weeks normally would only have happened over like the course of a year. <laughs> and I'm thinking about too where the idea of you, you use met, metronome, metronome, you know, like cadence and tempo or routine. There's sort of a, there's a rhythm to things and the rhythm's been kind of... Mm-hmm disrupted but also the way time as it feels uh, that it has extended I am thinking about time in relation to how you can measure it mm. can can I measure can I measure time and how often that's usually a marker of finality mm. or being able to finish something so you so there's a time period or there's a time there's a beginning there's an end 
Mm-hmm. And some of the, some of what it feels like now is that it, it's the question of, is there an end to this? Right. And so time feels elongated because there's no marker for us to have to point to that then says, that's the date. That's the, that's the thing I can say. That is the end. And therefore, I can position myself accordingly, pace myself hmm. a certain way because I know it's only two more weeks. And I can do this, 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 and that. But then the two weeks extends, and uh-huh. the two weeks extends, and then the two weeks extends. And so now, even the way in which we are accustomed to measuring our time by the months that have been given, mm-hmm. by the routines that we've had via work or school, and how we move in time is now literally, physically, how we move in space and time. We, mm-hmm. we can't even move in certain ways anymore right? based off of where we are. And then times of day are now disrupted. We also literally here in Paris just went through a daylight savings time change. <laughs> so even the sun <laughs> is operating differently. And so trying to get it adjusted to that mm-hmm. and trying to get adjusted to who you're seeing and what you're seeing, I think is, is another reason why it feels like it's, it's expanded. And for me, it, it just felt like it slowed down. Because I've heard some people say this. They feel like a prisoner that's been a language used mm-hmm. being in confinement. And I don't know if we want to make too close of an <laughs> analogy there. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if this is quite what imprisonment is, but definitely confinement has been a form of isolation that is at least approximated to something that feels like punishment. Hmm. And I am curious about the relationship between time as, as punishment. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever got in trouble when you were younger, Grant. Oh, yes. But there would be times where you would be in time out. <laughs> time out. Doing time, if you will, <laughs> as a toddler. <laughs> a little, little four-year-old Grant doing time. <laughs> doing time. Yeah, I mean, what's, uh, time is punishment. I mean, what is, what is that about? Yeah, the question of time as punishment is interesting, especially for this conversation. And I think really what you're asking is, kind of a question about confinement and how time moves in confinement in similar ways no matter where you are. And so like one popular or one common frame of reference for how time moves in punishment or how time moves in confinement rather is prison. And another one that I think of that I think might be a little bit more how I would relate to this period of confinement is in space and astronauts and how they are confined. I've actually become really fascinated with astronauts lately. I'm watching a lot of videos from astronauts who have like lived on the International Space Station for a year by themselves and how they are like in this space of being alone and not being able to maybe spend time in the ways that they would normally or that they would normally want to and how that can feel really disorienting, I'm sure, because when you're the only reference point for your day, is you and your immediate surroundings, it, it just kind of disrupts this whole idea of how we normally move through the world. And I mean, that's why astronauts talk a lot about the importance of schedule when you're in isolation mm-hmm. is because we're used to having this sort of rhythm to our lives. Like we go to the store, we go to work, we hang out with people. But when you're alone in, in space and not grounded, very literally, there's a need for that kind of structure structured time that helps just give some bearings where they would otherwise feel lost. And I think the, the structure too, so you're, 
just continuing with the astronaut thought, we're talking about literally experiencing time differently because you're spatially in a different place. So time is literally operating at a different speed, which I'm not a scientist. <laughs> but I know how crazy it is, you know, when I look at the stars at night and, mm-hmm. and the moon and the galaxy, and I'm thinking, when did that happen? And how is it that I'm experiencing that now? Mm-hmm. And what am I experiencing now? The past and the present and somehow the past's future. Right in the same moment. So there's that, that, uh, that, you know, what is time based off of where we are geographically and spatially? And then there's markers, not just geographically and spatially, but then there's markers that we all hold for each other, where isolation itself, time is experienced differently in part because we're not in relationship with not just structure, but, but, but physical markers of human contact and human mm-hmm. relationality. And I know... I'm going to put you on the spot here. I know you're a fan of Interstellar. Yes. No spoiler alerts, Grant. But that movie has me thinking about the way that time was experienced differently for someone who was in outer space in mm-hmm. connection to their family and to, and to the world. Yeah, I mean, it's just interesting to think about because it goes back to the, like relativity with Einstein and how gravity and space affects physical experiences of time um, and how there isn't just sort of some grand clock or grand metronome in the universe that everything is on the same pace and it's all moving at the same pace because it's not. So much of it is subjective based on like what you're experiencing personally, what you're near, like what planet you're near. Mm-hmm. And I think that just does some interesting things for how we even think of time in our in ourselves because it is moved from this space of just being an objective experience that's being like kind of acting upon me to my action and my position is intrinsic to the experience of time and actually bears weight on my experience of time. And how that weight is emphasized when time reintroduces death. I think death becomes a reminder of sorts, kind of a, a memory of our future. Yeah, and how that memory is a collective experience. And memories operate in this interesting way of being both collective and personal, where we all have experiences, for example, like what you were saying of death, and mm-hmm. how that's just that's a collective human experience where we all are just raised with this knowledge that one way, one day we are going to die. But we also all have personal experiences with death where mm-hmm. sometimes it's a friend or a relative or maybe a pet or even the meat that we eat. At some point, we come to a realization that there's death involved in that. And so it's both a personal and a collective thing. And how I think it's also interesting to think about how crisis is tied to that kind of collective memory. For example, you can talk to really any American that's old enough to remember 9-11 and they'll be able to tell you their personal experience Mm -hmm. of 9-11. But at the same time, we also have these collective memories and documentaries and in news stories that have shaped kind of society overall. And so there's this interplay between the ways that like our personal experiences feed into this grander, broader narrative Mm -hmm. and kind of shapes societies and peoples. And even how Corona, I think, is going to operate in that way when we're looking back on it, when Mm -hmm. it is a memory. It's the first event in my lifetime, certainly, and probably for a number of years before that, that has really united the world in this 
common experience where mm-hmm. we have all like, walked through this and we'll all have both collective and personal memories of it. And hopefully a reminder that death and crisis never happen in isolation. You know, I know for me personally, it's, it's calling for me to make the most of my time and to have the courage to say the things I ought to say to the people I love. What Do You Bring Into Lunch is a segment where we share highlights, resources, random facts, or anything else on our mind. Grant, it's our favorite segment. It is. <laughs> what did you bring for lunch? All right. So for lunch today, I'm going to go a little bit geeky because our concept was time, which has just gotten me kind of all into my sci-fi <laughs> self. <laughs> There's this show on Hulu, and I think it was just put out like this year or last, called Dimension 404. And it's basically like a mix between Black Mirror and Star Trek. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine this. <laughs> so it's like every episode is self-contained storyline, so there's not like mm-hmm. continuity between them. And then it's all about a world where technology kind of goes wrong in some way. But it's super interesting because they have, I think, two episodes that are specifically focused on like the concept of time. Mm. Yeah, and it's just, it's a fun show. I binged it pretty hard. I think I finished the whole series in two days. So it's on Hulu. It's called <laughs> Dimension 404. So, Victor, what did you bring for lunch? Okay, I've got a, I've got a random fact. All right. It's going to blow your minds. I'm ready. The hashtag symbol is technically called an octothorpe. <laughs> it's a little less catchy. <laughs> <laughs> so, no more hashtag anything. You can just octothorpe is the, is the correct language. According to Webster Dictionary, the octo prefix refers to the eight points on the popular symbol, but the thorpe remains a mystery. <laughs> um, one theory claims that it comes from the old English word for village, based on the idea that the symbol looks like a village surrounded by eight fields. Are you buying that? Wow, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm buying it either, but that's our word, Octothorpe. Octothorpe, word of the day. Word of the day. Challenge, challenge you to just drop it in a sentence. And see a... Octothorpe blessed. <laughs> yeah, I think that's going to that's gonna, that's gonna create a lot of judgment, I think, from your close circle that you Zoom uh, now. You can just say Octothorpe instead of hashtag. So that's, that's it. That's my, uh, that's my random fact of the day. I love it. It's going to be all right. Hi, I'm Jessica from Vancouver, Canada, and you have been listening to That Free Lunch, presented by the Catacombs Project in Paris, France. Special thanks to Bianca Phipps for letting us share her spoken word, Almost, and Here in My Body. To hear more poetry from her and other slam poets, subscribe and follow buttonpoetry.com and make sure to pre-order her book, Crown Noble. Thank you to Kingston United Methodist Church for letting us adapt their welcome statement. Thanks to the American Church for their hospitality. Stay safe, everyone, and thanks for listening. <laughs>